All right, so you get, uh, if you haven't heard this story before, some of what I was saying about why this story is a bit difficult. I don't think there's any, for, any way for us to start talking about it really without um, cutting right to what is troubling about this story, right? Here is a story of a God who demands uh, the murder of a child and not just a child, but a son by his father, whom in the beginning God describes to Abraham as your only son whom you love, right? Sort of driving the point home here. Uh, take this person that you love um, and get ready to do this thing, right? And uh, one thing I should mention in the, in the beginning is that a lot of early Jewish thinkers pegged uh, Isaac to be in his 30s at this point. So if you had an image of Abraham walking with this little boy, um, strike that. Uh, Abraham walking with his tall old son is more accurate, uh, perhaps, um, which I do think kind of changes some aspect of it. It gives a little bit more agency to Isaac, perhaps. But either way, even though Isaac survives and ultimately is spared, that doesn't make uh, what God demands automatically okay, right? If you sort of torture and torment somebody, and then eventually you let them free, healthy and okay. It doesn't mean that what you did or uh, inflicted upon them uh, just goes away, right? It says something about you when you do that. And so God did what God did, whatever reason uh, God might have had for that. Um, and whatever we may try to use to justify it, my question that I, can, I can't get over is how can we sort of unsee a God who demands such a thing, right? How can we unsee a God who would uh, ask Abraham to kill his own son? It's the pastor's job, at least I'm told, I was told in school, uh, to preach good news and hope. And um, it was very difficult, however, for me to read. You know, sometimes I'll read, uh, you know, you, when you do sermon writing, you read commentaries and this sort of thing. Sometimes you'll read other pastors, what they might have said. And it was very hard for me to read other pastors' writings on this text uh, who were trying very hard, like blood from a fucking stone, to get good news out of it, right? And um, it was, I wanted to read one in particular that I thought was, well, you'll see. So this is a quote. The good news in Genesis 22 is that God does not require the slaughter of Abraham's beloved son. God desires the child to live as a blessing and a hope for the future. As Christians, our daily decisions and our political commitments need to be made in light of God's attentiveness to the child and of his command, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. Genesis 22 remains a provocative point of entry for grappling with the radical demands of faith. It leaves many things unresolved. Whatever else may be said about this challenging narrative, it provides a testimony that whenever violence against a child is halted and whenever the needs and well-being of children receive attention, God is seen in that place. Now, I don't know how you hear that, but to me, uh, that honestly makes me feel a little sick. Uh, I don't think that this story would ever be sort of the poster story for children's rights or something, right? It doesn't seem like that would fit very well. Uh, I think sometimes we do need to do a bit of gymnastics when we're wrestling with texts in order to get something out of them that is useful to us. But the good news that I hear in a, in a sermon like that, sort of like gymnastics where you know, someone just falls on their face, it doesn't quite uh, strike me as um, having succeeded. Right. So what can we do to try and 
get something positive perhaps if that is even possible. Well, one method is to stick this story squarely within uh, a genre, right? This is going to get a little bit wonky on the biblical reading interpretation methodology stuff. But um, so perhaps many uh, biblical scholars argue that this is an ideological story, an ideology which is the study of how something came to be often told in the form of a myth, right? And so uh, this story can be seen as an ideological tale that shows why it is the Israelites um, stopped doing human sacrifice and moved to animal sacrifice, right? It differentiated them from many of the other religions and cultures in that region at the time. We know that those religions at that time in, in, in that region did practice human sacrifice. The Israelites themselves had a history enough that uh, throughout the law in the later books of Genesis, they have to repeatedly remind people like, hey, don't do the human sacrifice thing. Um, because it was so ingrained in what they were doing. So if we read it that way, okay, this is a nice story. It sort of explains this thing. Um, what it says about God perhaps is not as important as what we get at the very end of it, a reason for why uh, our culture looks a certain way. Well, another argument along those lines would say that uh, you need to kind of get really deep into the, um, uh, the actual writing and meaning of the people who wrote this text, right? And so, if you're not aware, a lot of people think that the early parts and many, much of the Hebrew Bible is written by m multiple sources, four distinct sources actually, that they then took all those sources and pieced them together, kind of like cut and pasted in a sort of way, and each of these sources had a different viewpoint that they were trying to push. Um, the E source, the J source, the P so priestly source had a certain thing they were trying to push on people, the J source, which is about Yahweh, had a certain, so you take all these different things and you find that in this story, it actually comes from the E source, uh, which we know through the usage of the word Elohim for God instead of Yahweh, right? So the way that they actually use or name God in these texts kind of reveals parts of who might have wrote it. And what's interesting about this story in particular is the only instance in which the uh, E writer switches the usage or the name for God in the middle of the story. and so. In the beginning, Elohim is the one who comes and gives the command to kill the son. And later, the God who says, don't do that, is Yahweh. And so uh, the argument can be made that the uh, Elohim God was actually a God that was worshipped, in a sense, by many of the other uh, cultures in that region. And so this writer is trying to portray a Yahweh that is different, that comes out of Elohim, but is the fulfillment or the higher version, um, one that is compassionate, the one that does not want murder of children and that sort of thing. So a historical reading um, can help us kind of maybe suss out a little bit why it is that a story like this would even exist. However, another method, which I think is a little bit more uh, in touch with our modern selves, is to take the events of this story and react to them freely in a manner <laughs> that is sort of lets our emotions and our shock and horror kind of spill out, right? Um, and this also has a, a deep history. There's an old Yiddish folktale that explains that God is the one who communicates directly with Abraham in the beginning, and an angel later, when, the, when God says, don't kill, there's an angel who says that. The reason being that the angels were so appalled by this command from God that they were like, if you want this to happen, you go tell Abraham yourself. We're not going to do such a dirty thing for you, right? This is an old folktale. Another um, moder more modern Israeli writer, 
uh, who's a professor, uh, post-independence, writes, there is no evading the Akeda. I hate our father Abraham who binds Isaac. What right does he have over Isaac? Let him bind himself. I hate the God who sent him and closed all paths, leaving only that of the Akeda. I hate the fact that Isaac serves merely as a test between Abraham and his God. Right? I think, at least for myself, I can identify with parts of that anger. Um, and Kierkegaard begins his famous book, again, Fear and Trembling, with a very interesting uh, tactic, which is he gives four alternative uh, narratives to how this story might have gone down, each one kind of plumbing the depths of the psychology of these characters. And so one of these accounts, which you know, begins with him taking Isaac out to the mountain, ultimately not killing him, sacrificing the goat, and coming back, it ends this way. Silently, he arranged the firewood and bound Isaac. Silently, he drew the knife. Then he saw the ram that God had selected. This he sacrificed and went home. From that day henceforth, Abraham was old. He could not forget that God had ordered him to do this. Isaac flourished as before, but Abraham's eyes were darkened and he saw joy no more. Right? You can sort of um, get a picture where something like this is very possible, right? If you go through an experience of this nature, um, the way that Kierkegaard imagines Abraham might have felt afterwards, um, I think, at least for me, I get a, a strong sense that I too would have felt that way. And so to try and gloss over these problems and these issues with this story, the ethical problems, the individual dynamics, the fact that Sarah is uh, left in the dark in this picture, even though she is the mother and ought to be informed of such a decision, I would imagine, um, to kind of try to move over all that just to be like, but there's a good thing at the end and therefore we must affirm that, I think is actually really unhealthy in a way and somewhat impossible. Um, we do this kind of thing all the time with our families, with our parents, uh, smiling through certain things and um, closing the closet door to the skeletons. I'm trying to, you know, you get what I'm saying? There's skeletons in the closet. And the toll it takes on us as we live that kind of life is real, I think. And it, um, it doesn't work, in my opinion, to kind of just be like, well, you know what, God is good and so it's okay. The story, it does contain something quite frightening, dark, disturbing. And I think we are justified to call it out in that way, right? We, um, in some ways, have to refuse to unsee it, right? If someone's like, well, just unsee it. Well, it's our duty in some sense to hold on to that. So my question then becomes, how can we look at God in such a way that we don't end up like Abraham in Kierkegaard's alternative reading, right? We don't end up with our eyes darkened we don't end up having lost our joy, end up having um, the inability to see God as nothing but a monster. I think part of the answer there begins with an acceptance that uh, God contains within God's self many contradictions, particularly as we come to try to understand who God might be. Our perception, our view of that God 
has these sides that are constantly in tension and fighting with each other, right? This is a God who makes a certain request uh, to do a certain thing, and then in, the, in turn prohibits that very request momentarily, right? This is a God who um, we think of as just, but we struggle to understand how it is that we live in such an unjust world, right? Created by God, right? This is a God who gives a bunch of laws to people when God knows, we find out at some point, that we are incapable of following these laws, that they, these laws become like chains to us, right? That um, a God who somehow, in order to overcome death and have victory over it, um, is also implicated in a world where death is so predominant and such a major part of all things. And when we try to see God through these contradicting kind of sides, uh, it's hard to know which side is the right side or whether or not we should even choose a side or all that, right? We think, uh, I think sometimes we try to assume that we must choose a side, but I, I would say that the ability the capacity to see these contradictions in, in God's nature um, is actually quite reasonable, right? And it's in the stories for us, um, it's unavoidable in a sense. Right? Okay, so we have that part. Okay. God is, has all these different seemingly contradictory ways of appearing before us. Well, contradiction as a characteristic of God, I think, can actually become freedom for us to know who God is if we are able to take that contradiction as something um, deeply meaningful and important to us. What I mean by that is that a, that contradiction becomes a burden. That burden is like a weight on us. And it only becomes a weight if it is related to something like the love that Abraham has for Isaac. It is in Abraham's love for Isaac, the, the way that Isaac means so much to him, that the contradiction of God actually comes out and is seen and experienced by Abraham. And as he experiences that contradiction, uh, as he knows that death is demanded, that death is coming for this love that he has, suddenly it's very real to him that God can exist in this way. One of the, I want, this is a bit of a tangent, but I just needed to go on a, a bit of a rant for a second while I have this opportunity, which is that I'm very annoyed often with the usage of the, um, especially around progressive Christian circles, which I hang out too much in sometimes, um, to use the word mystery to describe God, right? And it's, it's often God is, is mystery. We must live into this mystery, uh, contemplate the mystery of God. Uh, God is shrouded in mystery. Um, I would say all that is true. I'm not saying that's not true. What's upsetting to me about it is that it is often used as a sort of lazy answer, right? When people don't want to actually do the work of figuring or trying to meditate on something, right? Or even worse, it is used to justify um, a sort of God that we want to kind of look like us and that's all we really care for, right? And so. I would say that mystery is something that you have to actually win and earn in order to use it correctly. 
that uh, you know a murder is not a mystery just because it's a murder, right? You have to actually try to solve the murder, right? And so God is mystery to us, but only after a certain attempt is made to take on the contradictions of God as a burden unto us, right? And so that's kind of what I'm trying to say, right? And uh, what causes Abraham, I think, to grow cold in, this, in the ending of this story, in Kierkegaard's reading, I should say, is not that he uh, didn't feel the contradiction or feel the burden. I think he, he did, right? He knew a love through which that contradiction was made real to him. Um, and because he had those things, what happens here in this story is actually uh, a decision that he must make. Right? It's all about a certain kind of decision. But the decision is not the one that we often think it is. Kierkegaard uses the term tempt over test often here. He says, instead of God tests Abraham, he says God tempts Abraham. And, you know, if you think about it that way, a test, we think about a test as something you pass or something you fail, right? And so we frame it as Abraham either obeyed God in this instance or didn't. He passed with obedience or he failed with disobedience. But with temptation, I think I would like to try to reframe that question not as did God uh, or did Abraham obey a command and pass the test, but rather Abraham was tempted and so his options were to resist or succumb to a certain idea of who God is. Does that make sense? Abraham is being tempted here to see God in two different ways. To see God through darkened eyes, right? God as God as cruel and somewhat arbitrary. And on the other side, through eyes of faith, where God, you know, at the end of the story, we, we, we hear um, God always provides. It's a bit confusing, I think, but let me circle back down and finish it with to the question I asked in the very beginning. What can this story say to us about the nature of God? Well, on the surface, that, uh, that question evokes, I think, in us a sort of English class mentality, right? It's like reading Catcher in the Rye, and someone says, what does this say about Holden Caulfield? Well, Holden is kind of whiny, and he's a little bit immature, but he has a heart of gold. Like, that's the sort of mentality we get when that question is asked. I think that's actually... Um, not the way we can, we can glean anything useful. It's not the mentality of the English classroom. Rather, the first way to think about that question is to ask, our, ask ourselves, uh, which eyes are we looking through as we read a text like this? Are we looking through darkened eyes, or are we looking through eyes of faith? Right, because again, the fact is, in my understanding that God actually is all of these things, right? God actually is cruel, and God actually is compassionate. God is a violent God, and God is a God of peace. God is deeply unfair, and God is the essence of justice. God is these two contradictory things that we see. All of it can be true in a way. And what is happening when we experience that contradiction is 
to remind ourselves that we are in a, in a way being tempted uh, in the way that Kierkegaard, would, or Kierkegaard describes Abraham being. And so that's really, I don't have a, you know, it's not to say at the very end, I'm going to be like, so this is who God is. Uh, I think as an initial step in this conversation, um, what I'm trying to convey is that the attempt to even answer that question uh, must come with the acceptance that we are being tempted in a way. And that temptation will yield for us something within that contradiction. 